Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, I'm very excited. This is uh, episode 12. We've reached a dozen. And, and I think uh, with this one, we've kind of hit a new milestone. We've, we've had some amazing guests, but this is the first time we've had someone who's got uh, uh, the resume of, of our guest here. But more importantly, you know, someone I, I had a tremendous opportunity to work with when I was working in the, in the District of Columbia, working as the city administrator, someone I learned a lot from. That's the former mayor of Baltimore, former governor of Maryland, uh, former candidate for the highest office in the land, and that is uh, Governor Martin O'Malley. Hey, good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I, I would. Ha- I'm so excited about taping this podcast today with the with the governor. This is the first time I've been nervous for a do, Gov Actually podcast, like to tape one. Do we call you governor? Do we call you yeah. mayor? What's the What's the right thing? I mean, what's the excellency? Exactly. No. Okay. That's what that's how Henry Kissinger <laughs> once perfect. answered a similar question. Call that's me Martin. What Dan makes me call him. You can so call me whatever makes you comfortable. You can call me Martin. All right. Well, <laughs> well, we'll call you Governor. Uh, right. That's okay. That's fine too. Um, so, Dan, do you want to do you want to get started? I do. I, I think you know I, where I really want to kick off the conversation is a, is around something that we've been we've been kind of toying with over the last 11 episodes or so. We've been talking a lot about the fact that if you want to get anything done in government, you've got to leverage the the resources that are there, the primary resource being the people. And mm-hmm. in the case of the federal government, 2.8 million people, they're, they're there, they're looking for leadership, they're looking for management, they're looking for direction. One of the things I admired that you did both as mayor and then I know it was harder as governor, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, is this whole stat process where you really focused in on what are the key metrics that we're trying to achieve? How do we make sure that people know that we're going to be measuring them, digging into them? And then how do you create a culture that drives people towards success and achieving those outcomes? Wow, just a little question like exactly that to right. kick and, it off. And then huh? that'll, that'll be the first two minutes the first of the podcast. Half. Then yeah, we'll right. move on to other topics. Well, let me, t- let me start off by, by uh, talking about what you mentioned at the beginning of that question, which is people. I mean, there is a tremendous reservoir of commitment, talent, and knowledge and experience in every government, uh, whether it's county, whether it's city, whether it's state, whether it's federal. Sometimes when we would share stories of effective and innovative things that we figured out how to do, uh, especially in public safety, people would sometimes say, well, how did you figure that out? And usually the answer was, we asked the people that were doing the job. And um, that was true not only in public safety. It was true in restoring the health of the Chesapeake Bay. It was true in juvenile services and, you know, social services. It was true in transportation. But our, our command and control structure, and you can't see this on radio, but I'm forming a triangle, (laughs) that pyramid of command and control It's typically the way we have thought about getting things done in government, any big organization, any big bureaucracy. But I I have seen a real shift in that, and I was fortunate to have been at the front end of uh, that shift, thanks to some really insightful people, namely Jack Maple out of the NYPD Mm -hmm. uh, back in in, uh, 
the 90s and um, early in my administration, he came to Baltimore and, and helped us develop not only our own ComStat program, but CityStat. But the shift is this, from that triangle of command and control, uh, you see a change because of the information age brought about and the ability to, of everybody to know all of the information at the same time in open and transparent ways. You see that command and control structure shifting more to circles of collaboration. And yet command and control, or better stated, leadership, is still very important because those circles of collaboration in a regular cadence of accountability, and I might add creativity, uh, that doesn't happen without a leader who's willing to put him or herself not only in the center of that emerging truth, but also uh, with the discipline to call people together regularly and to create a culture, not of blame, but a culture where people feel comfortable in asking the right questions. And things get done under this new model, not according to the old way of, because from on high I said so, but things get done on the basis of because I can show you it works or it is working better. And if we did more of this, we could have it work at an even higher scale. And that's what I've seen happening with, with CityStat, uh, well, rather with CompStat, with CityStat, with StateStat. And in each level, you know, the larger you go, the, the higher the degree of difficulty and the more layers of things you need to accomplish. But, um, but it is a new and better way of governing that I've seen especially effective mayors and effective county executives embracing before governors have taken it on wholesale or, or even a federal government. Is there, is there a simple, quick explanation of what a, you know, you use the term ComStat, CityStat, StateStat, what, what, is the, what are the markings of a, of a stat program? The elevator definition, the, yeah. podcast definition, the podcast definition. The elements of any stat process are essentially the same. And they are. The tenets of, of any stat system is um, to have uh, timely and accurate information and to share it with everyone, shared by all. Second is, effect, is rapid deployment of resources. Uh, in other words, the goal is to get inside the turning radius of reality, not to be constantly chasing after it. Third is effective tactics and strategies, and their effectiveness is measurable, you know, by the better outcomes or worse outcomes. Is it working? Is it not? And, and fourth is the relentless follow-up. Uh, each of those four elements comes into play in the conversations that happen in a collaborative circle that not only includes the executive and his or her command staff, those with a, a enterprise-wide responsibility, you know, HR, finance, law, uh, IT, but also their counterparts in each of the line agencies, uh, whether it's public works or trash collection or transportation or, or public safety, or in the case of things that involve higher degrees of collaboration, like restoring the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, it involves not only the, the governor's command staff, but also the command staffs and, the, and those responsible for implementing and executing at the Department of Agriculture, Department of Environment, Department of Natural Resources, Department of Corrections, and the owner of the largest amount of impermeable surface in the entire state, the Department of Transportation. My favorite. <laughs> uh, but, but I actually have, there's a, there's a fifth component, and maybe it's out of humility, you don't raise it, but I think in order for that to be effective, or at least in my 
in my experience and what I saw both in city stat and state stat, our own version and cap stat, and an example we can talk about in a bit, I've seen in the federal. Yeah, you guys level. were early adopters. Yeah, we were. We, we we would go up to Maryland. We'd look at what you did and we'd try to make it better. This was when you were DC government. When I was with DC okay. government, but I, there's a and great example well. in the federal government I saw as well. But what what I think the fifth element, or maybe it's four B, I don't know. We'll we'll diagram it out later. Is the executive engagement the fact right. that the executive can't outsource? those operations presence. to someone else, can't right. outsource the presence, can't, if you have a stat director, that person is really the convener, the data gatherer, but they're not the person running the meeting. Right. It has to be the leader who's saying, I have as much stake in this. I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to create that accountability. Yeah. And let me build on that point with a question to the governor, because I'm going to pull a thread on something you said very, very early in your, in the response to our first question, you said, um, you said typically, and I'll paraphrase you, you know, someone will ask, well, how did this get done? Or how, what is this success about? And it's like, well, you got to go ask the people that actually did it. So there's this, there's this kind of inherent disconnect that sometimes happens between an, an understanding of what's going on in a government agency and the very critical role that the people that right. are in the workforce are playing. And I'm wondering if the, the, these criteria of a, of a stat framework enables more awareness both up and down the chain of, of who's doing what, what's going on, and, and you can see more the importance that the people are playing in, in, in the success of a, of a particular operation. Yeah, well, well absolutely. Look, the, um, the feedback loops, we've never had more information available in a more timely way than we do today, and yet it's so easy to become awash in, in, in trivia. Uh, uh, so, so those feedback loops are critically important. But, and one thing that, that Dan talked about was that leadership presence yeah. in the middle of the circle. I mean, you can have a feedback loop, but who are you feeding back to if the leader isn't there to, to drive and to ask? You know, I think some of it was it Japanese uh, manufacturing methods where you're supposed to ask five questions. Right. This, this is actually one of my favorite analogies. And I don't mean to cut you off running down that point. Is I actually think in many ways government, U.S. government is an awful lot like U.S. manufacturing was in the mm. 70s and 80s, where you had this massive disconnect between the, the, the front office and the people on yeah. on the line, and the and the people on the line, they're they're the widget builders, and the trick was to try to keep nicking them by two, three, five percent every year, and and you know worry about bigger, more important stuff like stock return, and and mm -hmm. and uh, you know GM was running a giant finance wing, and I think that that's a little bit about what we've seen in government too, where the the front office is so separate from the actual service delivery that there really is that feedback back loop has broken down yeah and and, and in the better places uh with 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 effective leadership people realize that you can you, you can put yourself in the center of that emerging that emerging truth i spoke to a gentleman who had been the executive of a um of a big grocery store chain out in the midwest and i was sharing with him what i saw in this i, I no he was sharing with me what he saw and this changing nature of leadership. And I turned around and showed him the slide that I use with the triangle to circles in my class. I said, you mean like this? He said, exactly like that. 
But presence is so important. You know, for this last semester, I've been up at Boston College at their School of Law teaching a course on performance management and leadership in the information age. And about halfway through the class, one of my students in a reaction paper said, hey, all of this sort of whiz-bang techno stuff about performance management and geographic information systems and graphs and charts, it's all fine and good, but without leadership, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And I said to him, Jeremy, congratulations. You have now grasped half of what I was trying to teach this year. <laughs> the other half is that in the information age, without the performance management, the metrics, the radical commitment to openness and transparency, you, as a leader, you can't get anything done. Yeah. Because it's now required, not only of uh, the, the, uh, the direction, the command intent necessary to drive a big bureaucracy, it's expected in a democracy. I mean, the, the oxygen that fuels progress is that consensus that can see what we're doing is working and things are getting better. And mayors have had an easier time grasping that concept, I think, because the things they deliver have always been very visible. They never had that sort of power distance that they're off somewhere in a domed office waiting for the perfect bill to sign. You know, yeah. they're always front and center on visible things, trash, crime, lights, dead trees, rats, whatever. It raises an interesting question. Like, I think, just from my own experience, 17 years in the government, um, my reflection is is that what you're, the picture that you're painting of a, of a stat environment where there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of discussion around metrics, a lot, a lot of understanding of, of what the objective is and how we're going to relentlessly track it. In my own mind, I immediately default to not the head of the organization at the center of that wheel, but from my experience, it's like some deputy or chief operating officer. Yeah, or budget director. Yeah. Even worse. And that, well, that's the question that I have for you. I think, you know. And I had some great budget directors. We, we both came from OMB. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no offense. offense taken. Right? None taken. But, but, none. but I think that's the, the standard play, and this is what yeah. I've seen across many administrations, is you start with maybe the deputy secretary or the chief operating officer at the center of the circle. The, the, the leader is, you know, maybe comes in symbolically for the first 10 minutes of the first meeting. But then even over time, that deputy secretary, that chief operating officer, suddenly stops showing up. Right. And so, you know, mm -hmm. the question... One, it's hard to sustain. Yeah. And it's to hard me, to sustain the executive commitment. Sometimes I think about it through the lens. I once had um, a boss describe themselves as a great manager and describe their boss as a great leader and how they complement each other. Mm. And I was just wondering, do you think the qualities of leadership and management are different? How, what does that Venn diagram look like? And how does that play out in how you set up one of these, one of these you know, stat functions to really drive towards accountability and results? Yeah, I think there, I think, and I'm going to speak, when we say leader, I'm going to speak in an executive context. I mean, there's some fine leaders that are legislators, congresspeople, senators, and the like, but we're talking uh, executives. So the, I, there, there is a sort of yin-yang and uh, uh, a, a necessity of having, of any executive, any mayor or governor, having a deputy for operations that is their alter ego. I mean, if simply from a time management standpoint, uh, you need somebody who 
uh, who um, is kind of 24-7 on operations, even as the executive has to be allocate a certain amount of his or her day to being the party leader, being the chief communicator, being the mourner in chief, being present at other sort of ribbon cuttings and, and other communication and, and broader presence functions than the presence at the operational meetings. Having said that, uh, any, I, I would advise any new executive that they've got to think in their head of allocating about 30% of their time to operations. And that means understanding, because understanding precedes all action, and you cannot take informed action if you don't understand uh, the, your, your operations. Uh, and the best way to understand it is to be present at those meetings. We, we received the uh, Innovations in Government Award from the Kennedy School for City Step because we took it enterprise-wide and we borrowed from Chicago 311 and put it together with that uh, common platform of the GIS system and the collaborative process of, of ComStat. And we did it enterprise-wide. I joke with people that the big innovation we received, the reason for the award was we were the first government in America to measure the outputs of government rather than just its inputs. But I saw many people from other city governments came to see what we were doing, to sit on a city stat meeting. And, and some of them I could tell by looking at the, the folks present were looking at each other and saying, we're not doing this. <laughs> this has a degree of openness and transparency. We're definitely not doing it. Or we're going to go home and tell the boss it's too much time at meetings. And others wanted to do it, but once they built out a room and cut the ribbon and had their first one or two meetings, the mayor lost interest. Yeah. There, are, there are methods to staying in the center of that emerging truth, that circle, even if you can't be there for the whole meeting. And I don't know that this podcast is necessarily the place to, to go into depth about putting the ship in the bottle. But... I rotated the amount of time I spent at meetings. I allocated it over things that were a priority. And certainly if, you know, we had a, a problem, I was spending more time there. Or if the necessity of collaboration was greater, I would allocate more time like on the bay. But even if I wasn't at the meeting, I got the briefing memos in my briefing book. I marked them up with a pen. Always careful to have two pat on the back in my own hand, good jobs, before I circled one thing with expletives deleted saying, why is this happening? This sounds like a bogus excuse. Please don't tell me this again. Uh, I want to know, and I want to know within the week why it is that the weight at the MVA Glen Burnie at the, uh, office is twice what it is in the other offices in the state or whatever it might be, but to be present doesn't, I mean, you, there is a physical presence to that, but being present, it's able to, you're able to be present in other ways, including writing thank you notes to the people that do a good job, right. sending personalized thank you notes to everybody on the pothole, 48 or 24 hour pothole guarantee that actually hit it uh, on those crews. And thank you is actually a big deal if you're in city service. You already know you're not getting a cash bonus and you're not getting a percentage of whatever the stock market was doing last year. Right. A thank you note's a big deal for people that have worked their entire careers and they feel like I do something for the common good. I work for the people. I work in the city. And to be able to take a personalized thank you note home 
to your spouse and say, the mayor wrote to me and thanked me for the job yeah. I do. That's a big deal. You know, Jack Maple, who was I mentioned before, was the deputy commissioner for operations, the NYPD, and largely attributed with being kind of the man that created this stat process with ComStat. He said, you know, Martin, in any big organization, 80% of us are in the middle. 10% are leaders, 10% are slackers. And if the leader of the organization lifts up the leaders in the organization, that 80% will tilt to the leaders rather than rocking back on the slackers. And the difference in that tilt is the difference between stagnation or nation-leading progress. And I think there is a lot of wisdom to that. That's interesting. So the leader lifts up the other leaders. Right. A lot of times... Versus, versus directly with the 80%. I correct. Sure. Okay. Yes. And the press, the media, who uh, understandably has kind of an auditing role, a kind of gotcha role, you've fallen down here role. Unfortunately, when they would come to observe these meetings, they like to portray them as if we were putting public employees up in front of a firing squad, right. giving them a blindfold and a, and a cigarette <laughs> yeah. uh, before firing them. It wasn't so much about firing the slackers. It was a lot more about lifting up the leaders. Well, I think, uh, you know, another way I heard that uh, described is that 80% is looking for who's winning. Mm -hmm. The 10% who are doing great are the 10% who are mailing it in. And right. people just want to be on the side of the winners. Right? And they want to see the compelling scoreboard. Right. And if the leader doesn't put the compelling scoreboard up there and give yeah. people permission to show it all the time to everyone, people can't tell who the leaders are. And yet, the political... You know, graybeards, the wise men of politics, will always want to tell a young mayor, for crying out loud, kid, don't set a goal with a deadline. What right. happens if you don't hit it? That is, that is, I've heard that at every level uh, of government, um, most frustratingly at the federal level of government. And if we commit to it and we don't hit it, we're going to get killed. And I said, <laughs> well, if you don't commit to anything and you don't hit anything, you're going to get killed. I said to, well, I've once had a police leader say, um, well, what if we don't hit it? And I said, well, what if we do? He said, yeah, but what if we don't? I said, yeah, but what if we do? <laughs> With that How long did this go on? <laughs> and then 20 minutes later. It took, and it's, I, I'm not sure that it's possible to really motivate a big organization without the leader putting his or her neck on the line and their leadership presence and credibility on the line by saying, we are going to hit this goal. Our goal is a 20% reduction in violent crime by 2012, which, by the way, we hit a 24% reduction in violent crime, and that was the goal that some were pushing back and saying, don't set it. Well, this isn't a, this isn't a show about politics, but I have to ask, is there a nexus? Do you believe that there's a nexus between performance outcome and politics? I mean, I, I wake up every day thinking that there is, that there's a, there's a nexus there, but sometimes you see... <clears throat> too often you see ample evidence that maybe the best, most productive or successful politicians aren't necessarily the ones who are the ones who can point to the best outcomes. I, th I think the, um, it, I think that the, I think that we as a people, you know, citizenry, us, the public, is still kind of sorting through the advent of this information age. Mm -hmm. And as awash as we are now, in so many details from so many channels <laughs> and now complicated by fake news right. and, and, and everything else. I think we as an electorate are still kind of sorting through this. 
Um, I think at the municipal level, uh, that's where I see the most effective governance and leadership happening in the United States. And it gives me a, a lot of hope for the future. I've been the chair of uh, the advisory board for a, a group called the Metro Lab Network, 40 leading cities and their university partners. And I've been hugely impressed with what I see going on in cities. Um, having said that, it is still possible in the United States, if you're dealt a favorable hand on your way in, uh, to fake being governor. And you can fake it for a good long time before anybody figures it out, if they figure it out. I mean, absent, uh, absent a crisis, people don't think about their governor very much. And when they deliver on things, usually the delivery of the good follows about a year and a half at best, the action that was required, <laughs> usually unpopular, to deliver it. Yeah. I'm thinking in Maryland, in the middle of the recession, we made ourselves the number one public schools in America, a ranking we held for five years in a row. And part of it, part of it, required a big investment in order to fund equitably uh, an equitable system of, of public education. That required a penny's increase in the sales tax. It also required our highest earning uh, families, uh, kind of our top 4%, to pay a little more in their income tax. Now, lots of people will remember the penny, and they'll remember uh, the, the income tax, but they take their child to a county school and when they drop them off, they're not asking themselves what percentage, is it 40%, 50%, or 60% of their kids' education came from their state tax dollar. So it's a yeah. governors can still kind of hide uh, and coast if they're dealt in an easy hand. Evidence the current governor of Massachusetts, the current governor of Maryland. So why don't we take a break, um, and uh, when we come back, I want to build off Dan's question. I have a really interesting uh, question for you around how, how politicians view the governments they're about to, to, to run uh, when, they're, when they're thinking about running for office. Okay. Um, so we'll take a break, and we'll come back. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, we're back. Governor, so I, I, I teed up a, 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 that I had a thoughtful question right before we, we went to break. So, so here it is. I, you, you, you ran for president. Um, you were in a place where you had to develop and architect uh, a set of ideas and policies and, and platforms um, that, would, uh, that would resonate with the American people. Um, one of the inspirations for this podcast was during the presidential election, Dan and I were reflecting on the fact that big ideas, whether good or bad, were being developed by, by, by these candidates, um, but there wasn't the, what we saw an emphasis or an understanding that there's a government uh, that's going to have to eventually carry out these platforms in some way, shape, or form. Um, whether you're going to 
even if you're going to deregulate, and there's a government that's going to have to come together and figure out how to deregulate effectively. If you're going to regulate, the government has to come together and do that. I, through the lens of, of someone who's, who's going to run for president or is running for president, are you thinking about the government as an entity and that's going to have to be high performing for you to succeed? Or is that an afterthought that you worry about once you, uh, once you get into office? You know, I, cannot, I can't speak for others. For my own part, um, I, I did think about that. I thought about it very deeply. And I was asked, uh, this is a true story, early on I was asked um, to, by the uh, Brookings Institute to come and give a talk on, um, in essence, uh, how to make our federal government more effective as an organization. It right. was some sort of title like that, like performance management as applied to our national government. <laughs> and, uh, and there were some reporters who came. <laughs> and so I gave, I gave my very best uh, uh, talk about it, boiling it down. I had specific examples. I talked about what FedStat would look like. I talked about the, the, essence, the importance of the leadership presence and, and all of these sorts of things. And, and, uh, and the, the reporter from the Post said afterwards, well, that was dry and boring. That's not going to excite the masses. Welcome to Gov Actually. Hey, welcome <laughs> to Gov Actually. And, and I said, well, you know, I, it, it wasn't really billed as kind of the red meat, get the crowd going type of topic. Oh, but totally yeah. you're not going to be able to restore the waters of our nation or step up to the tremendous opportunity and threat that is climate change without a government that actually works. You're not going to be able to deliver justice for all, reform our criminal justice system and save lives unless you actually have a government that, fact, that functions and unless you structure it in a fundamentally different way than the old separate silos of information and information trickling up if it ever trickles up yeah. on a one-year annual budgetary cycle. Um, but is this, this is it, if there's a... It's hard to talk about though on the trail, I'll yeah, tell you. A disconnect between politics and messaging and um, results matter. Results communicate. Okay. I'll tell you, that's what, um, uh, although this year, I mean, just in the, in the ethic and the emotion that was the electorate this year, uh, any f sort of experience in government was a liability to be yeah. kind of mitigated against. Uh, but perhaps that will change. But We've I did points find... points in our history, right, where public serve, like... I don't know. Maybe I'm not. A, I'm not a great historian, but I'm thinking of ask not what your country can do for you. I, guess, I mean, there's, I guess, a, there's but, a public service. There is a political but dimension. But JFK ran as a change candidate. Right. I mean, I bet you would say at some level you ran as a change candidate for mayor, a change candidate for governor, a change candidate for president. Right? Yeah, and that's so, what I. I yes, uh, but not enough change this year. The change people wanted was kind of the sledgehammer break the kitchen table change, yeah. and they got it. Um, We've talked about that. Like, we, in the last podcast we did, our, or a previous one, we talked about there are some positives of asking the question, if we were to blow it up, what would it look like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's curious. I met a, um, uh, uh, interesting, I'm on, uh, I was getting a, uh, I was in Rockville, and it was right around the time of the Trump inauguration, and I ran into an older gentleman as I was getting a pizza with my son to take over to my mom's house. And uh, 
he said, well, you know, about the election, he said, I've always kind of wondered what it would be like, though, if we ran our government like a business. And I said, you are. Look at your county and city governments. Yeah. Uh, so there is that desire that people have. They know that their national government, including their uh, House of Representatives, so-called, uh, isn't functioning very well, and that change is happening faster than our the common platform of our national government can to keep up with it and keep people in the center of the, that equation. And yet, at the at the same time, um, it, it's hard for it, it's it's hard to talk about uh, the actual techne, the method, the business management <laughs> uh, uh, aspects of getting things done without it being really boring to people. So I found the best thing is to talk about, is to, to come at it from a standpoint of results. And the results start to speak volumes about your credibility in terms of the how-to. Uh, so that, I found that results so by implication, like if we're going to do, if we're going to have safer skies, if we're going to have safer food, if we're going to have cleaner, whatever the, whatever the objectives are that are going to serve the citizenry, by implication, you're going to have a high-performing government to achieve those results. They're going to play a role. I'm not yeah, saying the government drives everything. I'm saying in the, in the puzzle pieces of these successful results, a high-performing government is going to be important. But that's never a campaign platform right? Um, for, right. for reasons which, which we're describing now. But then how do you get people excited about public service? Well, look, let me say, let me say this. Uh, when I ran for mayor of Baltimore, we had become the most violent, the most addicted, and the most abandoned city in America. Uh, knowing what they had done in New York with what most are calling now goal-oriented community policing. Um, I campaigned that year on, hey, let's learn from New York, let's implement this in Baltimore. And uh, because of the way that public safety, law enforcement is intertwined with racial injustice in our country, we also had to talk very directly about the actions we would take not only to improve policing, but to improve how we police the police, how we train the police, how we supervise the police, and when necessary, how we discipline the police. And we did those things. And oh, by the way, when it came time for re-election, we had driven violent crime down to some of its, uh, by the greatest percentages our city had seen in some 25 years. Uh, I was re-elected with 88% of the vote. And when I was governor, we had to do a lot of tough and unpopular things early on in order to address a structural deficit and then the recession hit. And yet when it came time for re-election, we were able to make a pretty compelling argument that we were outperforming Virginia and Pennsylvania in our rate of job creation. We had the highest, achieved the highest median income in the country. We were, according to one study, the number one state in America for women-owned businesses. Uh, we had created the best public school system in America, ranked number one for the first time ever. That never happened before. And we had gone four years in a row without a penny's increase to college tuition. Degree completion rates were improving. Um, and so all of those things communicated, and we won by twice the margin at re-election. In a tough year for Democrats, 2010. So we, went, we won the first time with 7% of the vote. And we won the second time with 14% margin. It didn't mean that people necessarily liked the unpopular things, the increase by a penny of the sales tax, right. but they understood the broader story 
of progress achieved, of results. And now another compelling example is the things we did on the Chesapeake Bay with partners like the District of Columbia and Virginia and Pennsylvania and other states in the region. I mean, last year, the health of the waters of the Chesapeake Bay were, were better than they'd been since 1985. There was an article the other day that said the bay grasses, one, one of the six indicia of the health of the bay, are coming back into uh, covering record acres. Um, and, 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 and those things wouldn't have happened without the things we did together, the inputs of the actions that drove those results. And those are the stories that I think leaders have to do a better job of, of telling in a shorter period of time in order for the public to discern uh, the things that work from the things that are just noise. So that, that was another way of answering the question that the person at Rockville asked you. You know, I like government, you know, why can't government run more like a business? And I think embedded in that is why can't there be clear metrics of performance like you have in business? You know, you're either right. making your payroll or you're not. You're either selling more products or you're not. You're, you're either attracting investment or you're not. And too often, it seems, particularly at the federal level, that those metrics are obliterated. There's, there's, there's absolutely nowhere to go to really get a sense. Where there's you, 400 of them. Yeah, you're looking at unemployment rate, but what does the federal government actually do about the unemployment rate, except mm-hmm. take credit for when it goes down and, and, and tries to get people to you know, worry about it when it goes up. So you, you must have thought then what some of, those, some of those indicia of success would have been if you had had the good fortune right. or, or not good fortune. I don't yeah, and, and sometimes we declare goals because we were doing so poorly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, because right. it was exactly. so bad, we wanted an improvement. I right. mean, one example of that was uh, our returning veterans. Mm-hmm. There was so little handoff between the United States Department of Army, Navy, yeah. Air more Force Marines. More than 50% of the homeless in the District of Columbia were veterans. And it's ridiculous. The programs are there to serve them, but there was no handoff between federal government and state government. Mm-hmm. And we were one of those states, like most, that has our own Department of Veterans Affairs. But they're not a detective bureau. And yet, uh, so because we were, we're failing our returning veterans so badly on homelessness, on employment, on all of the things that, that would allow them to reenter civilian life uh, and be the moms and dads we need them to be, I set a goal of... Of, uh, of reducing veterans' unemployment, you know, full employment for veterans. And we found that that was kind of the lead goose to drive those other services. If we could get them into the one-stop center for employment help and resume and those sorts of things, we had a better shot on the health or the, or the other things as they came back up. But we had 16, you know, the management guys and the 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 smart women that write the business management books will tell you that 16 goals is too many. But we had 16 strategic goals for our state. A couple of them changed in the course of those eight years, but really they all broke down into kind of four basic areas. Opportunity, namely jobs and education, uh, or, or rather, yeah, jobs and education, skills of our people, sustainability, uh, land, air, water, energy we use, and, uh, and health. Those were sort of the four areas uh, that they broke down into. And I'll tell you, gentlemen, without those goals, when I think back about the misery of the recession and when it seemed like as soon as you got done cutting the budget mid-year, 
there was another write-down of your revenues and you were back at work sharpening the pencils three weeks later. I, I, in retrospect, I, I believe that having those strategic goals helped us to navigate that without becoming demoralized and um, and it kept our north our compass, you know? We yep. knew where the North Star was. We knew what the command intent was. We knew what the big goals were and we were better able to collaborate and find ways to absorb the body blows of the of the revenue write downs and yet still get the job done, still drive the ball down the field. And um, so I think there's no substitute for declaring goals and having deadlines. In fact, the difference between a dream and a goal is a deadline. Dreams are fine, but, you know, without a deadline, it ain't a goal. I think the needle that, that, that we have to try to thread a little bit better is you, you, can, you can have a, a platform, an idea, or a leadership agenda that what's going on today is broken and we need to fix it. Uh, you can use that terminology or some other terminology. But to do it in a way that... That, that empowers the people that are there to, um, to be a part of the change journey right. rather than a messaging that it's broken, we need to fix it, and, um, and, and leaves the, the, the people that are, that are involved yeah. feeling, um, I don't know what the right terminology, but the wind's out of their sails well. uh, and, they're not, and they're not seen as part of the solution. Um, and and I'm, I'm, you know, I think this is a, a, a problem across many administrations. It's not any given administration. I think it, I think I've seen it across across Democrat and Republican administrations. And my my concern about it is not only the today's workforce. Like, like we want to drive them to 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 the right morale and energy and incentive to help with these changes that need to happen. But I also worry about future generations of workforces and, and are the talented people coming out of, that are in social studies classes right now in seventh and eighth grade, you know, what's the path for them to be a part of a high performing government, whether it's a smaller government or a bigger government. So that's kind of the, the, the needle that you, you seem to be threading that needle in a lot of your comments, but again, it's, it's, it's implied, not always explicit. Yeah, the well, let me, let me be as explicit as I can be. The um, vision's very, very important. I mean, the, I would ask the question, fix it for what purpose? Uh, I mean, our, my purpose in running for governor was to strengthen and grow the, the ranks of an increasingly diverse and upwardly mobile middle class to improve public safety and public education in every part of our state and to expand opportunity, the opportunity to learn, to earn, to enjoy the health of the people we love and the environment we need to more people rather than fewer. That was our goal. Our goal was not to dismantle the administrative state. Our goal was not to eliminate our government because it is a per se bad thing. Our goal was not to, you know, uh, uh, do away with all regulation because all regulation is bad. Um, our goal were those that I just articulated, our common good, the common good we share, what we want for our children, all of our children. Uh, and, and that's not the goal of the current administration in Washington. The, they, they've stated pretty plainly that their goal is to dismantle the administrative state. And there will come a time when the people of the United States demand to know what happened to their government, who took this from us. And yeah. why, 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 did, why was it done away with? 
And um, sometimes you see examples of that, and people will ask those questions in places like Flint, Michigan, and and when other failures happen. But uh, there's a reason we have a national government, and uh, it's best articulated in the preamble of the Constitution that begins with the words, we the people. And we've and Dan and I have discussed, again, I, the, the, the goal of the show is to, is to, is to establish a nonpartisan platform, but so let me react to the point you just made, um, because <laughs> in I, a nonpartisan way, in a nonpartisan <laughs> way, because I tend, I consider myself nonpartisan. But we, I mentioned earlier that we've talked about on previous podcasts that this notion of blow it up, change it in a dramatic way, it's 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 broken. Like, I don't think I don't. Dan can speak for himself, but I personally don't have a, a problem with that. Because sometimes asking those questions, you you let's say you, you let's say you hold out a position that says we're going to go, you know, we're going to go a hundred miles away from where we are now in terms of how this is operating, and by staking that out, the reality is the government won't let you, the checks and balances won't let you. But but by saying that, you might pull the government ten miles out from where it was, even though you're stating publicly it should be a hundred miles out. At the end of the day, that ten miles is. Good enough for the change mm-hmm. that you were were you anticipating. My my thing is is like I want to. So my position is I'm okay with 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 that type of goal to really shake things up and change things because I know the system will will prevent radical change, but maybe enable some good questions to ask. The question is how do you do that while still motivating the federal workforce? Yeah, well, the. the um I would uh, I would push back slightly and say if the goal is to totally dismantle it, dismantling it halfway still doesn't strengthen the common good we share as a nation. Uh, those are uh, yeah. that may be your goal, uh, but but there's a larger goal I think for 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 our nation than that. Um, let me try it this way. Uh, the the there, it's very fashionable to say that we're in favor of disruption. Uh, especially younger Americans are very pro-disruption. And I think it's because of their impatience with the pace of change that has come, as they see it, to yeah. the common platform of of their government, and uh, national government especially, even state government. But there's a reason why young people are moving back to cities, <laughs> and there are probably many reasons. Uh, some of them are economic, cost of housing, and college debt and the like. But another really important reason is that we're actually much better governed in our cities. People feel a sense of not only belonging, but also a sense of being recognized and having their needs addressed. Um, and, and, and all of that goes to, all of that goes to uh, the common good that we share and, and people wanting to, wanting to know that their lives matter in this place that they call home. So, so look, there will uh, every election is there's always another election around the corner, uh, and we'll the nations are great not because they never make mistakes, but the great republics are able to correct them in a timely way, and I believe very firmly that effectiveness and in, in governance, that science and that evidence are going to make a huge comeback in the years ahead. Governor, I really appreciate your joining us uh, on the podcast today. It's been um, fun. Uh, I think that one of the one of the great things you, you can contribute um, just to the audience and just to the people who are listening as a as a way to kind of wrap up is a uh, what's your what's your favorite story of one of those 
those otherwise boring administrative kind of operational things that you dove into, but by diving into it, you got something out of it that, uh, you know, maybe, again, maybe it's not something you could put on a campaign uh, poster. It wouldn't fit on a bumper sticker, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, being present, being engaged, as you talked about, is, is the way a leader can make a meaningful difference. One of my last official duties as mayor of Baltimore was attending my 10th line of duty funeral for a police officer who was shot to death in our city by a man who had been supposedly under the highest level of supervision by our State Department of Parole and Probation. While on that supposedly highest level of supervision, he had been arrested not once, not twice, not three times, four times, five times, but I do believe 13 times without any consequences. And at one of the very first meetings of our uh, public safety stat with our Department of Corrections there, I asked the State Department of Parole and Probation, of the last 50 people charged with murder in the city of Baltimore, how many were under our supervision at the time that they were charged with murdering another American in our city? Long pause, murmur, murmur, whisper, whisper. Sir, could you repeat the question? Yes, I can repeat the question. The question is, of the last 50 people charged in Baltimore with murdering an American in our city, how many were under our highest level of supervision? Murmur, murmur, whisper, whisper. Sir, uh, how should we, how would we even know that? And I said, you would talk to your partners in crime reduction. It's called the Baltimore City Police Department. I'm quite sure they'll be able to tell you. Murmur, murmur, whisper, whisper. Sir, can we have a couple weeks to get back to you? I said, yes, you can. And by the next week, they came back, and it turned out that 23 of the 50 had been under our highest level of supervision when they murdered another human being in our city. And that then led to a whole change in culture, direction, mission, using evidence, big data to do a better screening uh, tool and diagnostics. So instead of super supervising everybody just a little bit, we supervised the little bit of our parole and, pop and, and probation population that were the greatest threat as, as you know, demonstrated by the evidence of the big data and the number crunching that we did. And it was a, a huge contributor in reducing violent crime in Maryland to 35-year lows. And as the Talmud says, if you save just one life, it's as if you've saved the entire world. And that was something that only an effective government could do. That's, that's, that's an incredible story. And, uh, and, and I just want to thank you for, for being on today, but also thank you for, for being an inspiration of that great blend of leadership and management, like someone who thank cares you. about the, uh, what's under the hood. Um, I've been blessed to work with and for good people. Yeah. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Yeah.